0: Welcome to the Right Labs podcast. I'm Alan Davies, the Right Labs editor, and this week we're talking about how sanctions impact the internet.
1: We want to keep the world connected, so we want to comply with sanctions in an accurate way. But at the same time, not to say no, I don't want to like deal with this specific country. When we want to resolve one issue, we have to like really think about the implications on other aspects of the governance of the internet so that we don't come up with a system that just resolves this issue and but impacts negatively the whole uh, ecosystem.
0: Economic sanctions are designed to put pressure on countries, governments and other entities, depriving them of access to resources with the ultimate aim of deterring bad behavior. With the internet now itself such a vital resource, it's not surprising that sanctions have come to have an increasing impact, either directly or indirectly, on it and people's access to it. Over the past few years, as an organization at the heart of the internet, the RIPE NCC has been working hard to ensure that they remain compliant with sanctions, whilst also continuing to maintain and support the global internet registry system. Doing both at the same time isn't always an easy task. And so this year, the RIPE NCC initiated a project aimed at properly assessing the growing impact that sanctions are having on the way the internet is run. Leading that project is Dr. Fazane Badi, founder of Digital Medusa, an organization that carries out research on a whole range of important digital governance issues. At RIPE85, Farzaneh and Chris Buckridge, speaking for the RIPE NCC, led a session where they got feedback on this issue from members of the RIPE community. At the end of the week, I got the chance to catch up with Farzaneh. Here's how the conversation went. To start us off, I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your academic background as it relates to this topic.
1: So I worked on internet infrastructure in my research, mainly focused on ICANN. I lived and worked at universities in Europe for around 10 years. And then I moved to the U.S. and I I got my Ph.D. from Germany. Then Georgia Tech uh, a couple of years. Then I went to Yale Law School. And uh, last year... I started Digital Medusa to actually focus on exactly these issues, that, um, that such as sanctions, that uh, that affect our access to global internet.
0: What got you interested in sanctions? Where does that focus come from for you?
1: I am from Iran, and uh, I was for a long time active at Internet Corporation for Assigned Names and Numbers. And when I was there, uh, I noticed that there were some cases of uh, domain, uh, like Iranian domain name registrants that got their uh, domain names confiscated, and they they uh, came to me and they uh, reported these cases. And in 2014, there was a court case in the U.S. about. Um, attaching .ir, which is the Iranian CCTLD, to uh, the terrorist victims in uh, in the U.S. Mm. And that case also uh, brought up, I mean, it's not uh, related directly to sanctions, but it also brought up a is, lot um, of challenges that we are facing in order to provide a global act- interconnected access to the Internet.
0: Okay, let's dive into the main topic then. Um, Based on your work and research, could you tell us more about the ways you see sanctions actually interfering with the normal running of the internet? Yes,
1: sure. So um, uh, we have been looking at uh, the effect of economic uh, sanctions and up to now we have categorised, we have come up with like three categories. Sanctions that affect um, access to the essential properties of the internet, which is like infrastructure, number uh, resources, IP addresses. And uh, another is when sanctions affect uh, access to services that function on, on the internet. So for example, having access to Zoom or uh, other uh, software on the internet. And then the last is the effect of sanction on other industries that we rely on to facilitate access to the internet, such as banks. And uh, so I can go through it to give you a brother. So for the essential properties, access to essential properties of the internet, we mean sanctions that affect a number of resources and IP addresses. The effect is uh, much more than not having access to internet services. IP addresses are our entry to the internet. If you don't have access to that IP address, you cannot connect to the internet so it's important to at least not to affect access to number uh resources in my research uh uh, for the past uh seven eight years i have been like following and monitoring how sanctions affect um access to these essential properties and if we consider domain names also as an essential property uh then uh we see that um people in sanctioned countries have been affected. Their domain names have been confiscated by registrars because they're based in sanctioned countries. And also there are also other cases. For example, we are not very sure that this is exactly because of sanctions. Sometimes, unfortunately, companies are not very forthcoming about the reasons. But uh, another uh, problem is that ISPs, when they want to peer uh, with each other, they cannot peer um, with um, IXPs that are located in sanctioned uh, countries. The other one that we have heard rumors about, and we are still um, in the process of verifying it, is the cash servers. We've heard that there are companies, tech, tech corporations, they don't want their cash servers to have anything to do with sanctioned uh, countries. Mm-hmm. And um, as, as I mentioned, there is the access to online services. There's some research research, being done about how these online services uh, just block access of people in sanctioned countries to their uh, to their services by jail blocking. But payment service is just an example because going down the value chain of providing internet infrastructure for people, there are various actors and uh, one of them is payment service.
0: So you have this incredible background in you know, research into this topic and you've worked with these organizations. They're very closely associated with all this, but now, now you're um, doing this project with the RIPE NCC, and you're looking at the at how sanctions impact the core services that the RIRs are there to provide. So, in what way do sanctions actually impact the work that the regional internet registries do?
1: The core services that uh, RIPE NCC provides for uh, IP. Uh, registrants, like for example, transfer, or even sometimes when they provide some third-party software that uh, does dual authentication. If you have like members from sanctioned countries, these uh, third-party providers they don't want to work uh, with you. There is also like cases of that I have heard that inter rir art uh, transfer are also categorized as transactions, and that's why they are subject to uh, sanctions. So sanctioned countries cannot just take their IP addresses to uh, another RIR.
0: The conversation you had with the community at RIPE85 was really interesting. And uh, one point that Chris Buckridge made right at the opening of that session is that there's this tension between complying with sanctions and maintaining the global internet registry system. Um, Obviously, the RIPE NCC absolutely has to comply with sanctions. Um, but there seems to be the sense in which in doing so, they risk breaking uh, that system. So why is that? What exactly is the this tension here?
1: Uh, so sanctions on their own don't break it. It's um, a, a combination of things. I'm not saying that Uh, they don't have an effect, but it's a combination of things. So when uh, governments come up with sanctions for legitimate reasons, you know, human rights violators and terrorists. And um, so when they come up with these sanctions, um, well, they are not... Uh, well versed in uh, technology, they are and uh, at the different uh, sectors, but they are very good at coming up with these uh, sanction regimes. The problem is that the ambiguity in language for like compliance—that's one of uh, one of the problems that affects like innocent people. And so, despite the fact that sanctions want to be, so there's this thing called smart sanctions, which is instead of sanctioning a country, you want to sanction those human rights uh, violators or those who you want to punish and change their behavior. Uh, So you come up with a list, but that has not worked well either. And uh, so there's ambiguity, there is the um, uh, block lists uh, don't uh, work uh, properly. And especially when it comes to the internet, proportionally sanctioning IP holders, it's very, very difficult because an ISP, for example, that has an AS number, uh, they serve a whole population. So when you take that number away from them, then uh, that is uh, going to hamper all those like people who were on the sanction list as well as the users of uh, uh, internet uh, service provider. And then the tech corporations and uh, corp- uh, corporations that don't want to, um, like they don't have much at stake and they just look at countries like markets and they don't look at countries like, we want to be like globally connected. So those tech corporations, they yeah. just like uh, block, like they don't want to provide their services. Mm. Uh, the good thing about our values of interconnected global um, uh, internet is that we want to keep the world connected. Mm-hmm. So we want to comply with sanctions in an accurate way, but at the same time, not to say no, I don't want to like deal with this specific country. Yeah,
0: okay, and and so then there's this uh, other related point that was also quite interesting uh, that came up. So once you uh, actually start imposing sanctions on countries, you effectively incentivize them to look for. Their own systems or alternative systems,
1: right? Yeah. So uh, when uh, when you sanction a, a country and that affects uh, their access, especially countries that are authoritarian um, and they, they want to also like have their own internet in, and they want to block people's access to glo- a global internet, that would make their life easier because they say they this global commun- internet community, does not want you to have access to uh to the internet anyway for example in iran after the uprising, when they did like these internet shutdowns um they kind of like tried to say only only apps that have been built in uh iran they sh- they should be used and and You know, that kind of like worked. But for example, in the Ministry of ICT and Communication in these countries, over time, they have repeatedly said that if our uh, access to app stores, for example, is hampered, and because of that, we need to come up with our own local services. We need to have our own internet. We need to have our own uh, services and app stores on the internet. So it uh, it kind of strengthens their argument to have this, like, sovereign internet.
0: At RIP85, there was also a lot of uh, conversation about potential solutions to all this. Um, So based on the conversations that took place there and the way you've already done, what do the more feasible solutions look like here?
1: Uh, of course, we have to go and refine and uh, get more feedback on on the solutions, but there there are a few solutions. one was, uh, receiving licenses and exceptions uh, from the governments that impose sanctions in order to provide these services to people. Uh, another was that, which is which is very interesting, but also at the same time very controversial, and we keep hearing it, which is getting immunity, uh, international immunity, uh, for providing the services to number resources. And it is very, very important to emphasize that Our research, the scope is about number resources. We are not saying not to sanction uh, like software or anything like that. That is like a whole other issue. We might look at uh, those cases to learn lessons and kind of make the research richer. Uh, But that's what we are looking at. So it's a very narrow. Um, uh, scope of things. And uh, also, like, we are not looking for loopholes. We are looking to be in full compliance with the sanction regimes, but at the same time, as I said, provide some relief for access to these number uh, resources. And the other solution that I heard in the interviews, and also we discussed it a little bit during the session, is to convene a coalition of cross-industry, actors that uh, we have to deal with when we provide our services like the number of ser- registration services and others such as banks and these third party software providers so to work with them so that they don't also over comply and they can like understand the importance of this operation because not every actor works in this multi stakeholder model that Uh, wants to function globally some uh, actors as I mentioned they just don't care, they don't want to serve some country. But maybe if we convene this class, maybe we can find actors that don't want to comply broadly with sanctions and we can work with them. And the other is uh, of course, the like one of the main goals of this uh, research is to talk to policymakers and come up with best practices when they want to uh, impose sanctions on, on a certain country, how not to affect access to a number of resources.
0: So a big part of the project is re- really to uh, educate these bodies about. Yeah.
1: And also like identify, uh, well, th- that is like a longer term uh, thing for uh, RIPE NCC, but we want to identify the actors that are involved, which offices actually impose sanctions, who should we go to to talk to uh, when uh, these things happen. Uh, so we have this like kind of like mapping uh, idea of, uh, mapping the actors and which venues, uh, for example, should we go and t- uh, talk about? is like it, whether it's the UN or is it like these initiatives, like Freedom Online Coalition and uh, other initiatives that really want to keep the internet global and interconnected. Uh, but also, like think about other uh, venues and, and forums that are not that impose these sanctions, but are not familiar with. Yeah. Uh, with the internet. So this is one of the goals.
0: Yeah, so it's like, I mean, one of the things that keeps coming up, I guess, is this idea of getting away from any kind of blanket conditions exactly. being put on things. It's more of like teaching a more fine-grained approach.
1: Exactly. Countries say, we want to sanction this whole country and sanction their internet access so that they be disconnected. We can not tell them, no, don't do it. But what we can do is that when they come up with that regulation, we have like exceptions, and then that m- might make it also like easier to not to affect. So when when they trigger certain sanctions but because of that regulation that you have there, it's like this overarching uh, re- regulation. Because of that, then these sanctions won't affect uh, the number resources, yeah. for example. Yeah. But. But that's like a nuclear option, right? Yeah,
0: yeah that, that, that's also another thing, right? This idea of handling it in such a way now and working with the right people now, as you say, like getting that map of who you should be talking to, with the goal of having a general framework that will apply to future cases exactly. rather than going piecemeal and dealing with each case at a time.
1: Yes. Yeah, so it's very uh, forward looking. And uh, I got to say that this research is only like the first step and mm-hmm. uh, the longer j- journey of uh, getting the stakeholders together and talking about uh, these issues.
0: Just out of interest, as that engagement starts to happen, How does wh- where does that happen? Is this something that happens in the cooperation working group, for example?
1: So um, this is also uh, another part of research is to kind of identify those forums that might be useful, but Chris uh, is leading this work to kind of identify these uh, forums, and uh, he has Internet Governance Forum in mind. We are we have a workshop there in uh, a- Ethiopia that we are going to discuss the research. I mean, the research result is not going to be out by then. Mm-hmm. But what we are going to do is that we are going to do a kind of like a progress report like we did uh, during this meeting. And then we can talk to other policymakers and the kind of broader community.
0: It does seem like obviously one of the initial outputs of the project so far has been, and it's still a work in progress, has been the timeline yes. that you're working on. Uh, and it's already, you can see a lot there just from yes. looking at that already. Um, but there does seem to be this acceleration of things. And one of the things that we talked about in an earlier episode when we talked to Kieran McCarthy was how slow governance can be in the I star organizations. But this seems to be something that needs quite a quick response.
1: Yes, we should. Uh, d- we definitely want uh, this to be on people's agenda and uh, think about it and think about solutions and government's uh, agenda because there are like conflicts in around the world geopolitical conflicts or um, uh, like increasingly affecting access to the internet and as you uh, saw from that timeline uh, since uh, 2019 uh, up to now we have had like many, many sanction regimes in place and also as as well as having like licenses and um, regimes that would alleviate uh, some of the concerns about uh, the impact of uh, sanction on humanitarian needs and stuff like that, and even technology and the internet. But uh, yes, this topic has to be now on uh, the agenda of policymakers, the network operators, because now they might have challenges in who they can deal with and who they cannot deal with. And it's a very ambiguous and uh, complex uh, compliance um, uh, system that uh, that we need to think about and we need to give them um some kind of, like, how can you solve this uh, problem?
0: In the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch Ministry of Foreign Affairs has confirmed that they understand IP resources to be economic resources. This idea that IP addresses are economic resources, isn't that where a lot of the problem comes from in this particular case?
1: We should stop selling IP addresses. Can you put that on? <laughs> so, well, the thing is that the legal, um, the, this legal issue is very complex. Even if you don't sell IP addresses, court might look at it and say, okay, so can you exclude this? Like, does it have the properties of resources and It might, but the fact that they started uh, selling and buying uh, IP addresses and put a price on it, this exasperated the situation. Basically, when uh, you sanction a country, the problem is that those who are in power, they are privileged enough. To circumvent those sanctions and go and get their IP addresses and IP and uh, number resources from somewhere else, and that kind of like creates this class system that an ordinary network operator that just wants to. Operated, uh his or her network cannot have access to those ip addresses and then you get this class that you actually want to punish with sanction to have the upper hand and have the resources and that could also um result in concentration of uh, power in the hands of those that we want to punish because they are the aggressors. So we will have a class system in network o- uh, operators, and we will um, get rid of the ordinary network operators that just want to connect.
0: There was also a lot of uh, conversation about that, that notion of, a, of some kind of centralized body taking over the operation of the regional internet registries. You know, for years, NCC and other organizations have been arguing against, for example, an ITU controlled registry registry. But once we start looking at that kind of solution, then uh, we're undermining our own arguments on that front.
1: Fine enough. yeah. So um, if we go to these uh, centralized organizations, especially if they're international, then uh, we cannot keep the multi-stakeholder model that we have for uh, for the internet. It's going to be multilateral. So the governments are going to decide for us, and this is something we don't want. We want it to be distributed and... um, This is something that I mentioned and asked in the session as well. Should we think about why we even have regional uh, internet uh, registries? Because there's no technical, historically, there's no technical reason for having uh, regional uh, registries. So it doesn't matter. And also like in the RFC that uh, talks about uh, regional registries, one of the reasons is to uh, cater to cultural differences and well you can see that these regional registries they cover so many countries that are culturally so different so the reason for that is um we don't know and we probably it's, it's worth like finding out and see uh, what sort of governance changes we want to do in uh, that upholds those um values of multi-stakeholder governance but at the same time provides some uh, relief and enables us to provide access more efficiently and in a b- more fair manner to uh, people
0: i think like one of the last questions you have that whole long conversation the other day people from a very diverse set of backgrounds there actually um giving their views and suggestions um is there anything after all that that you're kind of like oh That's what we need to add to this project now.
1: Yeah, as I said, the the, uh, feedback was uh, very uh, valuable and I'm glad that people engaged uh, so well. Uh, One of the interesting things that we need to look at and I didn't know was... Uh, when silver mentioned that south africa was sanctioned and the internet was affected but they found ways to bring the internet to south africa despite the sanctions and uh, how that worked i have to go and do some research and i think that's a very intriguing case but also there has to uh, i am sure there are many more cases and we need to like learn from these yeah
0: because some of the Stepping back again, maybe to the previous point a little bit. Um, some of these solutions that involve kind of rethinking the whole governance model as it is now, like for real. I mean, like, is that even something we can start thinking about doing? Or like, I mean, there's di- there's different pushes to do this from different places, but it always seems pretty unfeasible. So
1: we can think about it. We can talk about it. Whether it is feasible uh, for the moment, I do not see um any kind of like uh eagerness from the community or even how do we like start that process and uh when you give immunity to certain organizations, then you cannot hold them accountable when we want to uh, resolve one issue we have to like really think about the implications on other aspects of the governance of the internet Mm -hmm. so that we don't come up with a um, with a system that just resolves this issue and but impacts negatively the whole uh, ecosystem.
0: So the project now, how how much longer do you have ahead of you with this? Like what's the next phase? And...
1: Uh, so the next phase is that I'm going to incorporate all the uh, feedback and uh, also like make cer- certain changes to the outline. So we are going to do uh, the interviews and uh, we are going to provide uh, a somehow preliminary i don't want to call it result but preliminary uh, progress reports for igf and then after that when then we are going to get some more feedback uh, from that session and then after that in uh, january and february we are going to just work on finalizing and fine-tuning the ideas and uh uh, and uh, hopefully we can have the report, like the whole research outcome by March cool. 2023.
0: Well, thank you very much for coming and talking to us. This was me, good. Razzini.
1: You were fine too.
0: I'm, I, it was all right. You You're great. You. I'm kidding. Thanks for listening. Work on this project is ongoing. And in the show notes, among other things, you'll find a link to the session on this topic from the recent IGF meeting. As always, I hope you enjoyed the episode. And do join us again in the new year when we'll be talking about BGP alerting with Artemis and code BGP.